Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. You're listening to episode 52 of Goodwill Hunters, and this is a special episode focusing on the four resolutions that were passed at the recent annual general meeting of ACFID, or the Australian Council for International Development. At the AGM, members may submit resolutions on topical matters of importance to themselves and the membership. These external-facing resolutions are non-binding in law. However, they assist ACFID and its members to demonstrate collective resolve on matters of critical policy. The first resolution you'll hear relates to the role of overseas development assistance in defending civil society space. Basically, this resolution, which was moved by Save the Children Australia, relates to the ability for humanitarian organisations to simultaneously assist and support civil society whilst advocating at a government level for particular action. This is as opposed to either advocating or assisting. This is a pertinent resolution in a time where freedoms of the media are being questioned. This resolution similarly raises the issue of the political freedom of humanitarian organisations. Matt Tinkler from Save the Children Australia explains. Okay, so thanks, Matt, for chatting with me. So Matt is the Director for Policy and International Programs at Save the Children and uh, is chatting to me about the resolution that was put forward uh, regarding aid and civil society at the recent ACFID AGM. Matt, thanks for making the time to chat. No worries, good to be with you. Okay, so maybe we start with just an explanation of what the resolution was. Yeah, so we put up a resolution at the conference that was around the role of aid in defending civil society space. Um, And basically what we are concerned about is there, over several years and in many jurisdictions, there seems to be a trend towards uh, the voice of civil society being uh, infringed upon by governments and that space for NGOs and local communities to be a voice and advocate for their interests is is shrinking. And that's a real concern for us because we know as development actors that part of our work and our impact is achieved through delivering programs directly to people. It might be a health or an education program. But often the biggest gains we see is when we take the lessons learned from those programs, uh, apply it um, at scale or advocate for change to policy policies, practices, norms and laws to enable that change to impact a much greater number of of children or families and beneficiaries. And that advocacy is critical uh, to NGOs like Save the Children and others achieving their mission. And when that advocacy and that space for advocacy gets limited, it really does diminish the impact that we can have and the benefit that our work can have for communities. Yeah, great. Thanks for that explanation, Matt. Can you give an example of how that advocacy might be limited or infringed upon? Can you illustrate that with an example? Yeah, um, so a good example might be in Bangladesh in uh, Cox's Bazaar at the moment. So 
We know the government of Bangladesh has been extraordinarily generous in uh, hosting a huge number, over a, a million Rohingya refugees. Um, but it's also a quite a sensitive place to do advocacy. If you take the issue of education, for example, um, children aren't receiving a full quality education at the moment. They're receiving maybe two hours of education a day at best in those camps. And you know, agencies are doing a great job of giving that access. But we would love those children to be educated in a mainstream school against a Bangladeshi curriculum and allow them to be accredited and progress academically through they can you know, leave school with a qualification and, and achieve a job. But at the moment, um, the government of Bangladesh doesn't want to open its education system for those Rohingyans. And it's, it's understandable in a way because they don't want to normalise their presence in Bangladesh. They really think the government of Myanmar should be taking Rohingyans back in and allowing them to resettle in their homes. But doing advocacy on this is quite sensitive. The government does not like being criticised by NGOs on this issue. Um, and equally on the Myanmar side, We've seen NGOs, you know, kicked out of Myanmar or kicked out of Rakhine State for advocating for the rights of Rohingyans in that, that country. So the Rohingyans is a good example of when you are working with a group of marginalised and deprived people, often they are deprived, marginalised for a reason, and that might be they're an ethnic minority or they have a disability or they're a girl and there are uh, cultural norms or there are very historic reasons for... Uh, discrimination against those groups. So when you advocate for those groups, it puts you in a politically sensitive environment and often your ability to work in that environment, your your license to access those communities can come at risk um, if you voice your um, concerns too loudly in some to some audience. Yeah, that's interesting. I think the phrase license to access is a really good one and it and it really illustrates the importance of this point. And, and I don't know when you're talking about it there, it feels to me an interesting parallel between the conversations that have been had in Australia in recent weeks around press freedoms and the right to information. Um, there feels like a parallel between, you know, freedom to enter communities and and have that humanitarian function irregardless of of a government agenda. It, am I right in drawing that parallel? Yeah, it, it's it's a balance between interests or, or rights quite often. And in, in the case of the journalistic freedom, it's a balance between, you know, right to freedom of speech and a free press versus national security interests of government and a, an interest in keeping their citizens safe. Um, so Save the Children felt this acutely when we were working in the detention centres on Nauru, for example. Um, in fact, when we agreed to be contracted to provide child protection, education and support services to children in those camps, we did so on the basis that we would retain our right to advocate because we we believed that we were the right agency to provide that support. We've got vast experience in humanitarian settings supporting children, but we didn't want to go if we would be seen to be complicit with a, a policy of mandatory or sort of detention, which we know causes harm to children. So we said, we'll go, but we're going to preserve our right to speak our minds on this. But that often put us, you know, at loggerheads with the government. And ultimately, we saw staff deported. We lost the contract on Nauru. And, you know, I believe a big part of that was that we were trying to do both things, have a licence to access children in those camps, but also speak truth to power and, and speak up for and with children whose rights were being violated. Um, and this is a tension that we as a an aid agency that's largely funded by institutional donors like the Australian government, we face this all the time and have to make judgment calls which balance 
our ability to access a population versus concerns we might have around the impact of government policy. Great. Thanks, Matt. So, so I guess to summarise, the significance of this for the sector is really uh, maintaining, uh, you know, the simultaneous ability to advocate and to access um, as, as, you know, humanitarian organisations. Yeah, and it's making sure that in the, the expenditure of Australia's aid budget, we don't inadvertently curtail the ability for organisations to, to advocate or for uh, communities and citizens in their own country to speak up and protect their rights. And so we're asking government to make sure that um, its use of aid funding values the ability for civil society to speak up, um, that programs include components around advocacy, um, and that we are allowed to build the capacity of civil society organisations in, in countries in our region to, to do this kind of work and, um, and make a difference in our own communities. The second resolution you'll hear relates to disability inclusion in the aid program. This resolution was moved by CBM Australia to draw attention to the need for leadership, advocacy and implementation of disability inclusive development in our overseas humanitarian programs. As I note in this discussion, we've come a long way on mainstreaming gender and most if not all organisations working in humanitarian assistance recognise the unique needs of women and the way in which humanitarian issues affect men and women differently. We've got a way to go with disability, but many organisations in the sector are showing fantastic leadership in promoting disability awareness and inclusivity. Jane Edge from CBM Australia explains. Okay, so I'm chatting with Jane Edge, who is the CEO of CBM Australia. Jane, thank you for chatting to me. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. Thanks, Rachel. Okay, so you also uh, proposed a resolution at the recent ACFID AGM relating to disability inclusivity. So can you start by telling us um, the nature of that resolution? Yes, the nature of the resolution is about ensuring that the Australian government really continues what has been a very impressive leadership role, bipartisan support for well over a decade, that has meant that Australia has been able to lead the way in ensuring official development assistance is inclusive of people with disabilities. And that's important because if we are going to live up to uh, our obligations under Agenda 2030, the Sustainable Development Goals, we have to figure out uh, in a more um, intensive way how to ensure that we are reaching the furthest behind first. So the principle is leave no one behind. And the reality is that people with disabilities are amongst those most disadvantaged, uh, most vulnerable, for example, in times of disaster. And if we are not really intentional and uh, following through on that inclusion element, then we won't meet those obligations. So it's about committing the Australian government to that third strategy, um, which is called development for all and ensuring that we continue to be able to model and demonstrate effective uh, inclusive development. And really importantly in that, Rachel, is ensuring that people with disabilities, particularly the, the strengthening um, of the movement, the disability movement in Indo-Pacific, has meant that those people with disabilities and their um, representative organisations uh, need to have a voice at the table uh, to actually be, be informing uh, the approaches the Australian government and various partners and deliverers of development assistance actually take. 
So we want to make sure that their priorities are central. I think that's the other piece to really emphasise in the resolution uh, that Ackford has unanimously passed. Yeah, that's great. And you made note there that uh, you're calling for a third development for all strategies. So can you touch on the success of the first two strategies in addressing this issue? I can, because it has been uh, a very effective way of bringing focus to uh, the situation of people with disabilities and in our region, as well as in, of course, the wider Asia and Africa, uh, the disadvantage in terms of their ability to get the same outcomes as anyone else from our development programs is um, incredibly affected. So their access to those outcomes has been improved by the development for all strategies that we've had already. And in fact, I can point us all to the Office of Development Effectiveness evaluation that was released in 2018. Uh, that actually really bore this out. It said there was good progress uh, under the strategies of the past decade um, that we've made disability inclusion a cross-cutting priority. There was also, of course, uh, the fact that there is still much work to do. Uh, the reality is to make it a fully inclusive disability uh, program means that we actually have to uh, pay far more attention and get this working through uh, at, at all levels. So, it's building on a great foundation and advocacy. The Australian government has also led uh, on the global stage in this, which has meant others have followed. And so the opportunity is to consolidate that, keep the momentum going in terms of Australia's own contribution, but to continue to see other governments and partners take on this work in a more um, constructive way. Fantastic. Thank you. And can you comment on the importance of this to the Indo-Pacific region specifically? Indeed. Uh, one of our partners uh, is the Pacific Disability Forum, which we have had a long relationship with. And the PDF strategic priorities are really focused on ensuring that the disability movement has the capacity to actively and meaningfully participate. And what we know of the situation in the Pacific is there is more data to be gathered. So part of our challenge is, for example, we know deaf communities are very poorly served. Um, and most recently, we've been able to get a situation analysis um, funded and, and has started to paint a picture of what the next steps could be there. But there is very little that we actually know in concrete data terms. And if I take the example of, for example, uh, girls with disabilities, in Vanuatu, we have a scenario where 90% of girls with disabilities aren't in education. So it speaks to the challenge of the Pacific, which is um, you know, very varied in geography, and uh, it means that there needs to be a much more concrete response to PDF's actual priorities, including looking at ways in which there can be more specific meeting of the needs of people with disabilities in uh, the assistant, development assistance program. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think in recent years we've seen gender mainstreamed quite well in our uh, overseas development assistance, whereby I think something like 85% uh, of aid investments need to have clear gender targets. Um, it, it, do you see disability going in a, in a similar direction? We would indeed like to see that happen and while it is being built in and we get a lot of interest from uh, DFAT Post, CBM Australia does 
provide technical support uh, through DFAT and to a range of other partners, uh, partner NGOs, but certainly requiring uh, the achievement of more targets would actually be a, a considerable step forward. The third resolution you'll hear is on the topic of climate change. At the ACFOD conference, we had the privilege of hearing from our Pacific neighbours on the humanitarian emergency that climate change continues to cause in our region. And this resolution, moved by Oxfam Australia, sheds light on the importance of this issue. Organisations working in the Pacific especially have no choice but to consider the impact climate change has on existing programs, as well as the impact climate change will have on future humanitarian needs. You may have heard me talk about this in our 50th episode with former Tuvalu Prime Minister, the Right Honourable Enele Sopoango. Simon Bradshaw from Oxfam Australia explains. Okay, so now I'm chatting to Simon Bradshaw, who is the Climate Change Advisor at Oxfam. Simon, thanks for chatting with me. Uh, Very good day, Rachel. Good to be with you. Okay, so the resolution that uh, Oxfam passed at the ACFID AGM related to the impact of climate change um, on our sector. So can you begin by uh, explaining the nature of that resolution? Of course. And resolution, I should say, Oxfam had one hand in this. Just as you started there, the sound cut out. You're going to have to start that answer again. (laughs) Right as you started talking, it all went... Um, Are you in Melbourne? I'm in Sydney. Oh, you're in Sydney. Okay. It's always in Melbourne. The connection's bad. All right. Start again. Go from the top. Can you just throw me the question again, Rachel? Sorry. um... Um, Can you comment on the nature of the resolution? Absolutely. Look, I think it was, uh, as they all were, a very important, um, very timely resolution. I should say that Oxfam certainly had a hand in this. We weren't alone. WWF was another key architect, and I think it had almost uh, unanimous support from ACFID members. And this, of course, is about the climate crisis. It's about climate justice. Um, it's, uh, It's speaking to what I think most people now see as the defining issue of our times, and something that has profound impacts on development and the aspirations of all our organizations. And more specifically, it really did three things, three very important things. The first was to really uh, recognize uh, the leadership from the Pacific, from Pacific Island countries and communities and rising to this challenge. I think most people are aware of just how acutely vulnerable Pacific Island countries and communities are in a warming world. Perhaps um, not everyone is so aware just how much on the front foot uh, Pacific Island governments have been in uh, transforming their own economies, building the resilience of their communities and particularly holding the rest of the world to account and doing a lot of very important international diplomacy on climate change. So The opening of this resolution recognises just that. It's a really important nod to uh, the leadership from the region and how important it is that we listen to those voices on the front line. Secondly, it um, commits all uh, ACFID members to step up their own efforts to be holding our own government to account, uh, to be pushing uh, all Australians particularly our government, but, you know, all actors across all sections of the community to be stepping up, to be moving beyond fossil fuels, um, to be playing our part in limiting warming to one and a half degrees, which is a matter of survival for the most vulnerable countries in our region, and to be providing our fair share of support through international assistance and so forth. 
And then the third element is more about us. It's about making sure that uh, development agencies are walking the talk themselves, are uh, factoring um, the need to uh, build climate resilience into all aspects of what we do and looking at our own operations. So there's a lot packed in there. We can get into the detail, but I think it's really those three things. It's uh, listening to the Pacific, recognizing the leadership there. It's holding our decision makers to account and it's making sure climate change is factored into everything, everything that we do. Thanks, Simon. Now, I think this resolution was particularly pertinent given the theme of the Atford Conference this year, Mm -hmm. which was, of course, First We Listen, which was about amplifying the voices of of our Pacific neighbours. And, of course, when we listen to our Pacific neighbours, we hear that climate change is the most important issue that we face. So this is obviously a very timely resolution. I'm interested in how you see this manifesting, not so much with government, we'll get to that, but with charities in the sector, what should you be doing to be more responsive to climate change as a risk? Mm. I know you spoke to uh, Right Honourable Anneli Sapoanga a couple of weeks ago, which um, I'm sure many of your listeners will have heard already. And he has certainly been one of the most uh, powerful and pertinent voices on just this. And I think we've all learned a lot uh, from listening to him. And that theme of first we listen is very important because I think if we really listen to communities on the ground and the challenges that they're facing and um, you know reorientate our priorities accordingly, then it can lead us to do things perhaps differently from how we've done in the past. It can lead us to focus um, uh, on uh, what at a practical level we need to be supporting um, communities and their effort to build resilience to the changes that they see, whether that's, uh, uh, you know, more destructive weather patterns, whether in the case of the Atoll Nations, it's rising seas, whether it's all these myriad impacts of climate change and understand the specific interventions that obviously often, you know, those on the front lines know better than anyone else what they need and what sort of support uh, they should be. Um, we, we should be offering. So I think there's a, there's a lot of practical lessons in there in how we um, uh, how we do our programs in really meaningful partnership with communities and partners in the region. I think that other point of listening is so that we can um, really, rather than trying to tell in our words, the story of climate change in the Pacific, actually look to be amplifying and giving platforms to Pacific Islanders themselves, um, so that they ending that narrative and you know, telling the story of the climate crisis and the Pacific on their terms. And as I think, as I touched on a bit at the start, um, there's been a tendency among, I guess, many of us to, uh, you know, portray Pacific Island countries as uh, you know mere victims in the era of climate change. And in fact, as I alluded to, um, they are. See, not only agents of their own destiny, but carry incredible, um, you know, knowledge, wisdom, determination, and leadership in responding to this crisis. And we can learn an enormous amount there as well. And we only have to see what many countries of the region, Fiji and the Marshall Islands, and Vanuatu and Tuvalu, particularly recently, have been able to do to really transform um, global climate politics and uh, the way we consider climate justice in the Pacific. So, listening to those perspectives and supporting them and, and amplifying those is is another thing. So look, it cuts across the spectrum of everything we do, both in a very practical sense, how we work with communities, um, how we play our part in communicating the realities of climate change and that leadership from the front line and helping inspiring others, whether it's government or the private sector or other development actors to play their parts. And of course, much beyond that as well. 
Yeah, great. And and from a government perspective, um, mm. do is the government uh, screening our aid investments for climate risk currently? Look, it's waxed and waned a little bit. Um, and I assume here we're talking about the Australian Aid and Development Program in particular. Uh, I think it's fair to say, and as uh, the department has said themselves, they they, they lost a lot of um, expertise uh, over a period there. I think during during the Howard era, where climate change was uh, deprioritized a bit. So I think there has been an ongoing process of getting uh, climate uh, risk back into the aid program as a priority in understanding how we can be an effective partner to the region in this way and in looking at not only how it needs to be mainstreamed, as we say, through the aid program, also the additional you know, initiatives beyond that that we need to be supporting that respond to very specific and new climate risks. I think it's back there as an aspiration. I think there are sincere efforts to, to up our game there, uh, which has been welcome. In terms of the, the volume of an investment that's going into things, I mean, obviously we're looking at a, a program that's been heavily diminished and all the support that's now being committed uh, to address climate challenges in our region and beyond, that's coming from that diminished uh, pot. And um, that is obviously a problem, as I'm sure others have commented on. And if we look at the global scale and the, the level of needs and the sort of obligations in terms of volume of international support, climate finance, whatever we want to call it. Australia certainly needs to pick up its game and has a long way to go. So it's clearly, it's back on the agenda. Um, we're having much more, I think, productive uh, conversations around this and lots more new and innovative programming ideas, which hopefully are and certainly always should be driven by those needs and voices and priorities of the region. But I think everyone would admit that um, we, we, there's a lot more we can do. Um, there's many ways in which we need to step up if we're to be doing justice to the, you know, the scale of these challenges and really responding to the priorities from communities in the region. And I think the very existence of your role is an indicator of how seriously Oxfam takes this. I think 10 years ago, we would have struggled to find a climate change advisor in any of our charities in Australia. Um, would I be right in saying that? It's, it's, it's interesting, actually. It, it, it's funny because, um, see, we have, let's uh, say, you know, Oxfam and others have been uh, out and about a lot recently, uh, getting on board and, you know, backing in what the amazing student organisers have been doing around the country and so forth. And uh, it's funny how often people will say, you know what, I didn't think uh, Oxfam was particularly involved in climate change. And, you know, I think when you when you work in the sector and, uh, you know, every day you're so confronted by the realities of the climate crisis and really can't separate out development work from the challenges of climate change, it's, it's sometimes odd, odd to hear that. I mean, I think it's, it's very much part of, you know, Oxfam's DNA. It's what we've heard from partners we've worked with for so long that, you know, this is, this is such a part of uh, the challenges that they're facing. And yes, I think, you know, you are right. Um, I think it, it's on the agenda, I would have thought, these days of uh, all the development agencies in Australia. But um, I think we're going to see more and more so um, that being better resourced, better integrated across everything we do. And I think if we're to be true to this uh, resolution that all active members of uh, all active members of uh, signed on to, then that extends to what we do 
programming and partnerships with the region, but all of our advocacy and influencing here in Australia and internationally as well, so that we're part of what is, you know, becoming, you know, I think an ever more, um, you know, powerful and diverse movement for real action here in Australia and globally. Absolutely. I mean, climate change is the greatest issue facing humans on this planet. And, and we know that um, people who are already experiencing vulnerability, including in the Pacific, are the most affected. So it's so obvious that this should be one of the greatest priorities of our charitable sector in Australia. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful for for the leadership of organisations like Oxfam in bringing it to the table at Ackford. So thank you so much for chatting to me, Simon. Well, you're very kind. Thank you, Rachel. And if I might just end with one more positive reflection. Um, there is another reason this is high in the priorities. I think it's rising to what is an immense challenge, but it's also seeing more and more that there are opportunities here that when we grapple with this, um, we uh, can deliver and support much better development outcomes in whatever we're doing. I mean, there are some very convenient truths here that uh, what's essential for tackling climate change, whether it's local renewable energy or supporting small-scale small producers or particularly promoting women's leadership and gender justice, these are all part and parcel of responding to climate change. But of course, they're precisely the things we need to be doing to meaningfully support communities and their development aspirations. So there's a lot of very difficult news when it comes to the climate crisis these days, but if we're willing to grapple with it, there are a lot of uh, tremendous opportunities in terms of realising uh, development outcomes as well, which is a, a message we heard through the conference and one that we you know, certainly hold on to and realise if we rise to this, then we can be helping create a brighter and more just future for everyone. That's a great message to share. Thanks, Simon. Lastly, the fourth resolution passed at the AGM is on the topic of Western Sahara and its illegal occupation by Morocco. 173,000 people are permanent refugees as a result of the illegal occupation, and Union Aid Abroad as well as Action Aid Australia urge the sector and the Australian government to show greater leadership on the issue. Admittedly, I've always focused on the humanitarian emergency in Syria and knew very little about the extent of the crisis in Western Sahara. Jeremy Hobbs from Action Aid Australia explains. Okay, so now I'm chatting to Jeremy Hobbs, who is the president of ActionAid Australia. Um, Jeremy, thanks for chatting with me. It's a pleasure. Okay, so can you begin by giving an overview of the resolution that ActionAid put forward at the AGM? Sure. So the resolutions on Western Sahara recognise uh, the fact that the Sahrawi people uh, who were made refugees over 40 years ago um, continue to languish in camps in Western Algeria in the most inhospitable uh, place I've ever been to. Uh, it's a desert area which can get up to 60 degrees Celsius and freezing at night. And it's just like a giant sand pit with people living in uh, generally makeshift housing uh, containers, cargo containers, um, and very dependent on, on foreign aid uh, for, for their basic subsistence. Um, it's often called, and this is as a consequence of uh, annexation in Sahara by Morocco and a continuing conflict between uh, Morocco and Algeria. Um, it's often called the forgotten conflict, one of the, the last unresolved post-colonial disputes 
Um, and of course, in reality, the Sahrawi are not forgotten, but actually uh, willfully ignored by uh, European states, the US and other countries that don't want to offend Morocco because there's a view that uh, Morocco prevents terrorists from getting from North Africa into France, Spain and beyond. But it means that there are these 173,000 people recently counted, so we, we know how many, um, who are essentially refugees for life. There's no no easy way out for them. Um, and it, it would appear that until there's a change of leadership in Morocco, um, these people will stay where they are, dependent on... Um, on humanitarian organisations for uh, their food and, and necessities, um, but no no clear way out. Um, so it, it's and I visited um, to do some evaluation work eighteen months ago, um, and it seems it struck me how important it is for the Sahrawi to be seeing that there is still interest in their plight, that um, there is uh, solidarity with them and that actually people care about what might happen or might not happen. Um, so I think the Ackford Council um, resolution is, is really important psychologically f for people who otherwise have no hope. And, of course, there are other countries where, where such resolutions are made. But the, the, the resolutions covered, um, firstly, that point, the support of the right of the Sahrawi people to self-determination and independence as a, as a political statement, um, and noting the importance of solidarity. But I think going beyond that, I mean, when I was there uh, in... May 2017, there was insufficient food, there was stunting in children, um, a lot of illness due to lack of fresh fruit and vegetables, uh, and lack of overall volume of, of humanitarian support. So we think it's, and this is one of the, the calls on the Australian government, that there is sufficient humanitarian uh, and development assistance. Um, that there is due assistance to the UN to run a free and fair referendum for the people of Western Sahara, which was promised in the 90s and still hasn't happened. Um, obviously to raise, as a matter of course, bilateral concerns about with Morocco about human rights abuses. Um, we, said, we met people who had suffered... Um, torture uh, at the hands of, of the Moroccans. Um, and obviously the, the basic rights of, of Moroccan people are not being respected. And of course, there's the other aspect where the Australian government might be able to have some impact is, is to uh, refuse any imports from the occupied uh, west part of Western Sahara until decolonisation of the territory is completed. So ACFID 
called on the UN to proceed with the implementation of, of the 1996 peace plan, the organization of the referendum of self-determination without delay, um, to ex extend the mandate of the mission of MINURSO, which is the UN, um, UN peacekeeping force, to, and the idea is to expand their mandate to include human rights monitoring and reporting to pressure Morocco to allow international observers, uh, NGOs and media to visit without uh, the, without any restriction. And finally, to establish a UN Council for the Natural Resources of Western Sahara to legislate for and oversee the development of natural resources. So they're, they're the resolutions. Um, I, I suppose the, the, the key point I would make is that it, it isn't forgotten. Uh, there's actually quite a lot of political energy uh, <clears throat> around Western Sahara at the UN, but also in the African Union. Um, so in New York, obviously there are there are African countries uh, <clears throat> for whom this is an important issue, and there are efforts and quite a lot of action tr trying to encourage um, the UN Secretary General's office, which you know is quite friendly on this issue. Because Guterres, uh, in in his previous life, in UNHCR, uh, had this on his plate, um, and he had he had actually appointed a, a very good guy uh, as special envoy uh, on on uh, Western Sahara, which was Hurst Kurler, former German president. Um, so there there are those kinds of changes in personnel. At the top, and as well as that, there's been some changes both in the Polisario, which is the Sahrawi uh, military wing, um, and the president of Algeria who died, Abdelaziz. Um, so there's there's changes at the top, uh, apart from Morocco, uh, obviously. So that that creates some room for manoeuvre, and then there's there's been rulings such as the uh, European Court of Justice ruling on access to fisheries, um, and quite a lot of community action uh, around shipments of um, fish oil from from the European countries sourced from Western Sahara and phosphate. So there's even though it's not a, it's not a central issue in when you compare the the drama and tragedies around Syria uh, and other parts of the Middle East. It's still a lot of people permanently stuck as refugees in camps, um, which which should be unacceptable to uh, the international community. So I think that's really uh, I, I hope that's a helpful overview of. Yeah. Of the, at least the resolution. Yeah, certainly. Wow, that that was really comprehensive. Thank you. And I hadn't realised such staggering numbers. Um, I think 175,000 people. You said there. 173. Wow. And and this is in the face. Um, the Moroccans basically saying there's only 50,000. Why why are we making such a fuss about such a small number of people? Uh, whereas in fact it's 
a lot more than that. Um, and yes, it's obviously not reasonable. No, not at all. Well, it, it's uh, I'm grateful that the resolution was put forward, and it sounds like it's certainly something that the sector needs to. Um, be advocating for so thank you thank you so much for such a comprehensive explanation okay those were the four resolutions we'd love to hear your thoughts on the four issues and how they affect your work in the humanitarian sector i'm off to PG with the lowy institute in just a few hours so in our next episode i'll tell you all about that and share the insights of another fantastic guest with you chat to you soon <laughs>